likes the idea of the book of Revelation, but most people don't like it at all once they get into it. Not only is it difficult to study, but it doesn't give you the things you think it's going to give you. Most people are tickled by the idea of the book of Revelation because they think it's about the end of the world and a way to kind of figure out what it's going to be like at the end of the world. But what you get is just a, a cacophony of images and corners and spectrums and weirdnesses. And to figure out what they mean, what you have to start asking, what does it mean? You just have to go dig somewhere. And the most popular diggers today are called premillennial dispensationalists. Now, you don't have to know that. But what they do is they teach everybody that Jesus is going to create a secret rapture where all the Christians are going to be taken away. And after that, there's going to be a tribulation during which the Antichrist will be revealed somewhere, probably in the Middle East. All that's nonsense. Complete, utter lies. Less than a couple hundred years old, too. Brand new stuff, completely made up by Americans like the ones who made up Mormonism. Anyway. People get excited, though, by that idea. They want that. Oh, I can have power over the world if I know what's going on. Then you start digging, you find out it's just a bunch of, well, confusing symbols. But they're only confusing because you don't have the key. What's the key? Two keys. Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So if you don't know the Old Testament, Revelation's a closed book. You're going to waste your time reading it in some part. I mean, Christians can get something out of anything they read in the Bible, even if they don't understand it. But if you go to it and you try to teach living from Revelation without a full understanding of the Old Testament being finished in Jesus, it's going to get all sorts of stuff wrong. You're going to miss a lot of the points because it's not every verse. I once heard someone say it's like two-thirds of all the verses, but that's not really fair. Because in a lot of the verses, it's like three or four times per verse. It's like every couple of words, you have an allusion to an Old Testament story. So to really get the most out of the book, like every five words, you should be reading three chapters of Old Testament to understand what those five words meant. Ain't nobody got time for that. I don't even got time for that. I mean, I've tried. I've taught through this book or into this book my entire ministry. I've only been through it all the way one time with a group of people. They started with like 15 and ended with three. I don't think I'm that bad, right? The book's tough. The book's tough. Um, it's also glorious. So the more you just know your Old Testament in general, the more you won't need to go look up stuff in the Old Testament. You're just going to hear the echoes coming through. It's kind of like if someone composed a musical score that took all your favorite songs from your whole life and put them into one big compound concept album dedicated to you. Well, that's what John did, only it's dedicated to Jesus in the Old Testament. It's beautiful. You cannot put it into words. And I can't, I want to. I want you to see what I see after all these times teaching and trying and teaching and trying. I can't. And so I just, I, I yammer instead. What I'm going to do is we're going to go slowly here through chapter one. It's going to take a while. There's a bunch of stuff, but you're going to have the intro. If you, if you listen, you take some notes, you'll, you'll remember it. Huh? So let's start right there. Chapter one, verse one, the revelation of, and this is so key. Who? John? No. The end of the world? No. What's it a revelation of? Jesus. If you read this book and you don't come out of it seeing Jesus Christ, you have missed it. The point of the book is that it was given to Jesus so that Jesus could show us. That means we should be hearing him more, not less, by the end of this book. 
So the revelation that God the Father gave Jesus to show to his servants, that's you, the things that must soon take place. Now I'm going to call foul on that translation. It could mean that. That's one of four or five potential meanings for the preposition, which could mean after, really, at that point. The things will take place after this. But, but soon is not always the same in the Bible. As you know, Christ has not come back as quickly as people expected. And then second, these prepositions in, that he will be using regularly to talk about the times. They don't only refer to after as in later in time, but they can refer to after as in behind time or on a second level with time. Now, this is probably the most philosophical thing I'm going to ask you to reckon with in this, but it really is key. Is John talking about what will happen someday? Or is he talking about what's always happening until Jesus gets back? I vote B, okay? I'm going to teach from B. Everything John is saying is permanent, real, eternal realities. Even the end of the world, when we see it happen, already happened right there on the cross. We just don't see it yet. Huh? So, and by the way, there's three end of the worlds in the book, so be careful how you do that one. The key is to know is not trying to show you how or when the world ends, but to recognize that the end of the world is a cosmic warfare that's been going on since we fell, has been victorized in Jesus on the cross, has been climaxed in his ascension to the kingdom now, which he still reigns over, and so none of it is waiting to happen. The only thing is that we don't believe it, and then we don't see it, and so we think that makes it more real. We think what we see is more real than what God has done, which is amazing, really, if you think about it. So that's, again, we've only got, what, seven words? I'm sorry. <laughs> the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. This is not only in the future, it's around it's under, it's behind us. He made this known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. I had a new idea for the first time this morning that that's actually John the Baptist. And it's based on this idea that 1 John 1, Revelation 1, and John's Gospel chapter 1 are all kind of drafts of the same writing. And he, he loops himself around these things. You spend time in them together, you'll kind of see them. And John the Baptist shows up in John's gospel as the one sent from God, just like it says here. And John the Apostle, in fact, was a disciple of John the Baptist until the day that John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I saw heaven open, and the Spirit of God descend and land on him like a dove. It is for this purpose that I was sent. And John the disciple of John the Baptist says, I'm following that guy now. And that's what he did. So I think that's what he's saying here, that I've learned from John, the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so now, having seen this all fulfilled, I love verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Huh? Yeah, see what I did there? And blessed are those who hear, that's you, and who keep what is written in it. That's faith, as believe it to be true, for the time is, there's that word again, near, soon, after. Is this about later? No, it's about imminency. It's about right now. Okay? So now, that's just the, the opening. Again, this whole section here dances through different ideas. So we're like, left turn, John introduces himself. The way you would expect from a Paul letter, right? John to the seven churches. Paul, an apostle, to Galatia, right? that kind of thing. But who are these seven churches in Asia? 
your English Asia on the continental map you had to memorize in seventh grade or whatever is all wrong. This is basically Turkey. Modern day Asia Minor, Turkey. Seven churches. There's more than seven churches in Turkey at this time. Very important to know. Jesus has just shown up and told John to send a letter to not all of the churches next to each other. That's weird. But the number seven's not weird. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there are four sevens in Revelation. If you want to understand the whole book, you cannot read them as if they are going to be like in order. It's the other way around. Each seven overlaps the other. So you have seven churches and you have seven, uh, I'm going to get them out of order here, seven seals. Then you have seven trumpets and then you have seven bowls of wrath. Lap, 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 lap. It's the same story every time, just from a different angle. I'm not going to, again, dig into that, but that's why he doesn't write to say, uh, um, I'm going to lose it off the top of my head, one of the other churches that's in Asia Minor at this time, smaller ones. In any case, he writes to them and he says this, sounds like Paul again, grace to you. That's good usually, right? Love, mercy, grace to you. And peace, it's not war, it's peace, from him, now this is cool, who is and who was, and who is to come. This is not unlike Moses, excuse me, uh, um, yeah, Moses running into the burning bush and being told by Yahweh, I am who I am. This is like that, but different, right? That God is, and was, and is to come. He's outside of time entirely. Remember now, this is blessing and peace to you from that one, though. The Almighty God now gives you blessing and peace. Um, in this section, verse 4 and 5, this one who is and was and is to come is the Father and not Jesus. And the way you can know this is because by the end of it, verse 5, it's also going to say, and grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ. So you have grace and peace from the Almighty, you have grace and peace from Jesus Christ, and squished between them, you have the weird part, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne of God. Seven spirits, that's new to most people, right? I've never heard about that. Of course, it can be translated as sevenfold spirit or spirit of seven sides, something like that. And of course, remember, we've already talked about there's four sevens in Revelation. So now we have to jump a little bit. Numbers in the Bible matter. They are usually actually literally true, and then they are usually also symbolic in some way. How did God do that through history? He made sevens show up in history at certain times at certain events, threes, forties, twelves, and they all kind of have themes to them. And the theme of the seven is holiness or set-apartness, sanctification, God's being in charge. That's the key of the sevens. So this sevenfold spirit needs to be heard as a holy spirit. And now that should sound familiar to you, right? You've heard of the Holy Spirit. So the sevenfold spirit of God is there. Now, how can I say that? That sounds like I'm just asserting that. Well, I am right now. I can also tell you, go home and read the book of Zechariah. And you'll find a whole discussion of the sevenfold spirit in between these two trees that are these olive trees flowing into lampstands, which we're going to see the lampstands again in a moment. So there's all sorts of other pieces in the past you can pull into this. But what I want you to just get then is verses 4 and 5, right after he tells you all the history brought him to Christianity, he now confesses the Trinity. He says the Father is with you, the Spirit is with you, and Christ is with you. 
And what is Christ? He's a faithful witness. That means you can trust his words. He's firstborn from the dead. Hey, resurrection. And don't miss this in these evil days. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. You know, you got a king, right? I feel like you don't because I know that even though I knew I had one, I lived like I didn't. And this year has been one of those times of like asking, who's my real authority figure? Who do I trust? And I can't trust Jesus to tell me about elections or anything like that per se. But I can trust him to be in charge of whatever happens. And to have whatever happens be what he wants to have happen for the good of the church. So when it happens, I can know it was for the good of the church. And if I think he's wrong, well, that's a moment for pause then, isn't it now? When Peter says to Jesus, it shall never be, it's not a good sign, right? And so to sit back and remember that Christ the King is in charge of all of this madness and mess, that he is the true witness, the firstborn from the dead for you, not bad news at all. Now he breaks into a doxology to this same Jesus, to him who loves us, who's freed us from our sins by his blood, then verse 6, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. I could spend half an hour on kingdom as an idea in the Bible, more than half an hour. You spend a whole college course on that. And then the priesthood is another idea. It sounds a lot like what Peter says in one place. I have made you a nation of priests, a holy kingdom. Same idea. Maybe the most important thing for you to take home today, though, is this. That means you are a king. In Christ, you, women too, are a son, an heir to the eternal coming world. You should consider yourself among the people of this age a king. You're an immortal God from another time walking about here. Now, it's very easy to forget this and start acting like them because we don't really feel different, but you are. You're a king and you're a priest of a coming age. You're a harbinger. You're a foreshadowing. You're a foretaste and a firstborn. All of that right there. Ah. Behold, he, verse 7, is coming with the clouds. This is a quote from Daniel directly. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. You hear that in the Wesley song, deeply wailing. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Now, we won't have time to go into all that Daniel is meaning about Christ's ascension, which is what the coming on the clouds of the Son of Man is about, his ascension. Um, what I want you to see is this, how this verse he quotes, he knows sounds awful. He is coming, we will see him, they who pierced him will wail. Even so. Amen. Now that's some chutzpah right there. I'm not, I'm not kidding. To look in the face, the day of judgment and hell, and to recognize that people you care about are going to burn, and to be able to say, God's God. Even so, amen, come Lord Jesus. I don't want the day to wait. I don't want the day to not come. I don't want evil to remain so the evildoer can remain. I want the evildoer to believe. That's why John writes. Even so, if the evildoer does not believe, so be it. Amen. Now we have a time when there's debate here. Verse 8, is this Jesus talking right now? Is this the Father breaking out and talking? I think I lean with uh, most translations will not put this in red letters, meaning they don't think it's Jesus. Jesus is going to quote this in a minute, though. So what's happening is 
The father is going to speak about the certainty of, of his reign, of his being in control of all things. And then in a moment, John's going to see Jesus the man looking like the father, actually. And then Jesus is going to quote the father of himself. He's going to say, I'm the one, which again is a Trinitarian idea. Uh, that the incarnation of the Son of God, he wasn't just a God or like a God. He is the very God. Not the Father, though. Yeah? So the Father says this, verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. That same line from before. And he calls himself the Almighty. Right? Nothing's outside of his control. And then again, left turns, like John the way you write this early part is a little tough to read. He suddenly starts talking about himself in the first person. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the endurance that are in Jesus. I'm going to slow us way down there. He calls himself two things, a brother and a partner. And both of those things, the brotherhood and the partnership, they're the same. It's a fellowship. It's a binding together. It's that idea I was just talking about a moment ago that we're all part of the same new species that's different than unbelievers. Yeah? Brother and partner, what is the difference we have now? Three things. The tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance. Now, I already mentioned the kingdom before, that you've been adopted into the reign of Jesus. He's the ruler of all the kings of the earth, and you're a son and heir to his kingdom. So I shouldn't have to explain that one too much. John's just saying, I'm into, yay, <laughs> But with that kingdom comes tribulation. And that's maybe the most important thing to circle here. Because in the world of false teaching about the book of Revelation, which you have no trouble finding online if you want to look for it, that stuff I said earlier that was all nonsense, the idea of a tribulation is central to their theory. And the tribulation is something that hasn't happened yet. John wasn't in it. We're not in it. Not till the rapture. And then after, it's got to be after that, too. More time. Think of this whole roadmap. It's nuts. But according to them, the tribulation has not come. And yet here is John at the start of the book saying, I'm the brother of yours in the tribulation. So either when that word gets used in the Bible, it means something that most people who use it don't mean, which is what I think it is. Or, well, John's wrong. I don't think that at all. Do you? I, John, brother, partner in the tribulation, he knew Romans 7. Do you know what I mean when I say that? The good that I would do, that I cannot do. That which I would not do, that I find myself doing. Who shall rescue me? Thanks be to God for Jesus. That's Romans 7. That's the tribulation. Right now, you, every day, knowing who Jesus is, knowing who you are in him, going to try to be and then not. And then asking, why am I here, Lord? What's the suffering for? Why this tribulation? He says, because you're a son in my kingdom, and I discipline my son, so learn the patient endurance that is in Jesus, that third piece. Patient endurance. Waiting. I, I've been talking about this all year to you a little bit, and it's been a cultural experiment in waiting. Yeah? I'm not sure I like the way the culture is doing it now, but Advent is about waiting for Jesus. The, the promises of God to you about this life before he comes are often about waiting because this too shall pass. The scepter of wickedness doesn't stay where it crushes things as we're experiencing now. It comes and goes. Wars come and go. 
So we don't have to be afraid of everything being crazy forever. What we need to learn is that it's always tribulation. It's always a problem. And that what we do differently than everyone else is we endure patiently. We don't demand our just desserts. We go pick up and clean up whatever else needs to get picked up and cleaned up because we like good things. If it's laudable, if it's praiseworthy, if it's trustworthy and true, then Jesus wants us to sing and use it because it's going to be good for our neighbor. Yeah. Anyway, I'm tangenting there a little bit. John is with us in this need to have to wait for God to send the answers. And particularly, he's in a prison island, a camp. It's a little rock of a place, not much of a place to visit. It's more now because tourists go there, but back in the day, just like a desert rock in the middle of the ocean. He was there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That is, because he said that Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, he was in prison. Now, we don't have that problem yet. And no one's really upset with us for saying Jesus is Lord. They're more upset about marriage and things like that these days. But the point still being, when you speak for Jesus, tribulation can be, again, right around the corner. And he's there. Verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Uh, this one just doesn't explain itself. You can take this to mean that he was in some sort of visionary trance already, like every Lord's Day, which is Sunday, by the way, the time everyone worships at this point in Christianity. Um, they've left Saturday behind by this point. Uh, but every Lord's Day, I guess John just maybe gets out his yoga mat, sits there and like goes into some sort of ecstatic trance in the spirit. Like, you can assume that, even though the Bible never teaches that kind of stuff. Or you can assume that what he's doing is he's reading the Psalms, he's praying through the Old Testament, he's remembering that his Christ and King has risen, he's confessing whatever early version of the creed he has to himself, that he might, on this Lord's Day, be a Christian, like you would do if you were far away, I hope, open a hymnal, open a Bible. And as that's happening to him, he hears behind him. Now is when it gets weird, right? I'm just reading a Bible a moment ago, and there's somebody behind me with a loud voice like a trumpet. I, uh, I remember as a kid, our church in Portland that we went to, um, it was in a gymnasium. They didn't build the church yet. And so it was a, it's a Lutheran school. Uh, I was baptized in the gymnasium. Uh, and they'd roll out carpet every week and put the altar up and then take it all down. It's a lot of work. Uh, I remember they had a lot of musical people at this church. And one of the men who worked for the college would come and he'd play his trumpet. I don't remember never liking that much. I don't know if we sat too close or what, but I remember like, being glad when he put the mute in the trumpet. It, it made it less. It, it weakened it in that gymnasium, particularly, without the sound stuff on the walls, right? But the idea here is you get close to a trumpet, like in your ear. It's one of those moments you're not real happy about. That's what just happened to him. He hears a voice like a trumpet from behind him. And what does it say? It says to write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Here's this list, right? Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Now, after he hears this, John does something a bit weird. He turns around to look at the guy. And we're not going to go there yet because I want to talk about what he heard first. But he doesn't pay much attention, right? First, he just turns and looks, and it's going to be explosive. But this bit about write what you see in a book, I find this persuasive. You don't have to follow me on this one, but it's worth following the idea so you think about it. There's five books by St. John in the Bible. Revelation, the Gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Most people don't read 2nd, 3rd too often. They're incredibly short. And 3rd, 
doesn't say a lot, really. I mean, it's like a personal letter. But in any case, um, all of these, all of these, we know come from later than the rest of the apostles' writings in the New Testament. How much later? That can be debated. And again, if you take the liberal scholars that you find on the History Channel, that doesn't count. They're going to say everything was written in the 200s, and they're just lying. They don't know their history. They're trying to fabricate stuff because they're mad about their own past in Christianity. So just ignore those guys. They're bitter, and they're getting paid to destroy faith. Uh, ignore those guys. The fact is, John's stuff was all written after the destruction of the temple, and that most of the other apostles were dead by then or would be dead shortly after. John, 20 years later, 30 years later, he finally writes. Now, we heard in the gospel a moment ago, there was this rumor he might not die. So you can imagine why he might not write. He's going to be around for a while, but Maybe he realizes one day he's going to die. And maybe it was the day he was sitting on an island and God showed up and said, you should write. Because that's what happened. God said, you should write. And so he did. So here's, here's my theory. John had not written a word until this. He gets off Patmos later and Revelation becomes the blueprint for the Gospel of John. He doesn't do all Revelation in John, but that opening thing I was talking about, how there's, there's these echoes and laps. And then he actually writes the letter first, first John, and then builds that into the Gospel. So that by the time he gets to the end of the gospel where he says, if all the writing of all the books were ever done, it wouldn't be enough, he's in fact done. He's gone straight through in that order. And he's grown as a person through it. And I think you can see that in him, his own faith, his own life, as he prepares for his own death. Now, again, that's a big claim. That's the kind of thing guys go to school to write PhD thesis on, and I'm not going to do that. So, so someone else, take that one. Go run on it. But I'm going to preach as if it's, it's true. I'm going to preach as if it's true that John now is having a moment he wasn't ready for. And it's going to involve having to say things. And at first, this big picture is going to overwhelm him, which is why later he's going to write that gospel to combat Gnosticism particularly. I'll leave that for another time. Um, so he didn't think all that through at this moment. He just heard he was supposed to write by somebody who was shouting in his ear and he turned around. I don't blame him. Um, but then again, he turned and what did he see? First, he doesn't even see the guy. He sees seven golden lampstands. How many sevens are we going to run into, right? I said there's four big ones, but here's a small one around Jesus. Seven golden lampstands in the midst of these, right? They're all in a circle around him. One like a son of man, a phrase Jesus used to describe himself, a phrase Daniel used to describe Jesus, um, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. It wouldn't have been quite like what I'm wearing here, but not unlike it. What, what we wear in our churches are really ancient garments, uh, royal garments, truly uh, official city or political or, or royal ambassadorial garments. And the idea is that Christ is a royal person. He is the king. And so he here is dressed as a king with high quality, you know, glistening white clothes are hard to come by even now, right? And a, a real golden sash uh, wrapped around his chest. So again, pastors today in our church body reflect the ancient image of that. And, um, and we can talk about that, that again another time. But I don't want to go past the golden lampstands. So, so here's this kingly figure with this image of his glory, his wealth. He's just got everything he wants in his clothes. But he's between these seven lampstands. And we have to see these things not like like these ones so much here, although these have the seven on each side for the same reason, because of that seven. But it's more like if he had seven of these guys, right? And these were all split around him, seven individual stands. 
as opposed to them being tied together. So Jesus is in the middle of all of that. He's going to talk about what that means in a moment. But there's more description of him. So after this wealthy royal clothing, we hear that the hairs of his head are white, like wool, like snow. Now, I'm starting to go gray here. You can see it. A little on the side. It's got, I got that like, who was that? George Clooney did that well, right? He had like the gray streaks thing. Um, to go full white, I'm probably looking another 40 years, right? I mean, I, I can see one, two, maybe two, three in here. So, well, Jesus is 33 when he dies. Why has he got white hair? I mean, maybe it was really tough. I knew a guy. This is, I shouldn't laugh. I knew a guy, a uh, pastor uh, down in central Illinois. Uh, he was 27, something like that. Stark white hair, story of it. His wife almost died, giving birth to their, their first child. And he had to be rushed in and everything. They go through it all. It's the hospital. Everything turns out fine. He walks out, looks in the mirror. He went white overnight. They're nuts, huh? Well, I, I guess the point here is not that, though. The point is Christ is absorbing the image of what Daniel calls the ancient of days. How do you get white hair? You live a really long time. That's how you get white hair. So why does Jesus have white hair? Well, because the one who was before me is after me, as John the Baptist says, right? This is the ancient of days in the flesh. So that's that. And just in case you missed the fact that this means he's God, he's got burning fire shooting out of his eyes. I love it. I just, I mean, I really do. This terrifying God, who again, remember what he's going to say in a moment though, fear not. But why can he make it so you need not fear? Because he can put terror into your foes. That's why. And he does so with his divine wrath and power, which you see flickering in the fire of his eyes. His feet then are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, glowing metal for your feet. Uh, this again reflects some images of God in the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah. But the idea here is that if you've got like glowing bronze for your feet, and you're like Iron Man, like you walk over everything, right? Nobody stops you. You just kind of go. That's the idea again. Nobody can stop Jesus. And then he speaks now, not a trumpet. Now is the roar of many waters. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls and tried to have a little conversation next to it, you'll find out. Can't do it too easy. Many waters make a lot of noise. Down on the beach with the big waves, maybe not the lake, but the real beaches. Sorry, I'm from California. Um, you know, you can't talk by the ocean. It's too loud. Uh, and so that's the idea here. He speaks and is that loud. All that image is meant to uh, really, uh, shame's the wrong word, to weaken you, to, to break your resolve in the sight of who this king is so that you can with John in verse 17 fall at his feet as one dead. First, he also describes one other thing though. So this guy is holding in his hand seven stars. I mean... Uh, I don't know. Stars are really big balls of burning gas far away, or so the science book tells me. So I don't know how to even imagine a guy holding seven stars in his hand. They'd be very small, I guess, right? But again, that's the idea. There he is with this power, this cosmic power in his hand. And just in case that wasn't weird enough, when he opens his mouth, a tongue doesn't come out. A sharp double-edged sword comes out. I've seen people try to draw this. It doesn't work out too well. Like a wiggly sword's not a real thing. Best one I ever saw is a, a, it wouldn't work like permanently, but he's on a white horse and he's coming down and he's got his hand like this and his hand's on the hilt of a sword made of light, but then the sword of light's running through his head like a shooting beam of strength coming out of his, his face. It's 
it's really kind of cool. I, I still don't know if that's the right way to imagine it, right? But the idea of the sword in his mouth is not that Jesus has a wiggly, sharp tongue. The idea is that when he speaks, he cuts you. And he cuts you two ways, double-edged, right? He cuts you to death, and he cuts you to life. He does both to everybody. The difference between Christians and non-Christians is non-Christians just don't believe it. Christians do. One last piece. <laughs> Imagine you turn around to look at this guy. You got all this going on, and then his face is shining like the sun. Whoa. <laughs> A little hard to look into. So he falls down at his feet as though dead. All of that is really the buildup for 17b. So there you are before the holy God with flaming eyes of fire and bronze crushing feet. And he touches your head. That which we have seen, that which we have touched. Yeah. Uh, and he says, fear not. Fear not. I am. Here it is. The quote from the father earlier. The first alpha and the last omega. But I've done something. I'm the living one because I died. The father never died. The spirit never died. Jesus is unique. He alone died as God and is alive forevermore. So, I mean, you got to hear it. It's like, a, so check it out, my friends. I have the keys to death and Hades. I mean, we're so lame. I remember being excited when my friend had the keys to the car. The keys to death and Hades? That's a deal right there. And that's where we have to stop. That's where the text ends. Revelation is intense. Someday, maybe, you'll talk me into doing a real study on it here, but I'm not going to do it unless you all buy in and you're all coming because it's not worth it to me to do it one more time for just a few people. But if you really want to dig through it, I think we, I can tell you what the whole book means, and I think the world would appreciate it once we did it. Let's leave that for a little in the future. Let's do one piece here to close from that First John text. I don't want to miss this. First John chapter one, excuse me, chapter two, verse one and two. Three words get dropped right there at the end of the text. And all of them are glorious, good news, gospel words. The first one is the word advocate. We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ. Advocate is a legal word. So don't just imagine, know that the last day is a courtroom. And on that day, by the way, not only Christianity teaches the same thing, Judaism, Judaism, Islam teach the same thing so far. That day, they're going to open books in that courtroom, and there will be a prosecuting attorney named Lucifer, Satan, Lightbringer, whatever you want to call him, the devil. His job is to get you condemned. You are guilty, and he will prove it by anything, hook or crook, thought, word, deed, it's in the books. Oof. You have an advocate with the Father. In that courtroom, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So that means that Jesus is your defense attorney on judgment day. Now, the real irony in this is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Well, justifying is the same idea here. But you go back Old Testament with that. That word righteous is usually used in front of another word, the word judge. Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, because he is the judge of the last day. So you're following the math yet? On the last day in the courtroom where Jesus Christ is your judge, he's also your defense attorney. You see how rigged this is? It's a good thing, right? Hey, arrest my case against myself on myself. I'm sufficient for his innocence. Boom. 
done. Advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's two of them. He is then in these things the propitiation for our sins. It's the most marvelous word. Please memorize it. Propitiation. Satisfaction. Same idea. To have something be completed or filled in when it was lacking. To have what was undone be made. There's a hole. You complete the gap. Jesus is that. Period. He fills the gap. He completes the whole propitiation, satisfaction, all of it. Your debts are paid in him. I mentioned this morning that this would not be the most Christmassy day. Yeah? But I'm going to try to send you on your way here. Yeah, we got a little time. With some Christmas. But first, you have to endure Ecclesiastes chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 3, so that I can give you Christmas after verse 7 and 8. So if you want to turn there, you can. You don't have to. It'll be, it'll be a little briefer. But there's two pieces here. Did you notice how in that hymn you sang a few moments ago, uh, half an hour ago, uh, hymn 508, the day is surely drawing near. Did you notice how the first four verses are pretty gloomy? They're really dark. And then the last three verses are all about Jesus. They're really light. And what happens is the level of pondering of your sin that you take in those first four verses will kind of be equal to the level of feeling pretty good about forgiveness that you have in the last three verses. If you never bother to think about your sin, forgiveness doesn't mean much to you. And that's sort of what I'm going to do to you here now. I want you to have a Merry Christmas. So I'm going to make you think about something very dark first. And they're right next to each other, by the way. So again, Ecclesiastes chapter 9 says this in the middle of verse 3. It says, Truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to death. Merry Christmas, right? But that's kind of what it feels like all over the world right now. There are people who will not be meeting for Christmas because their governments are telling them not to. We're going to, as, as you know. But regardless of what you think about COVID or what you think about you know, Trump and Biden or what you think about the fall of the British Empire, right? none of that really matters. What matters is that you know that madness is in the hearts of men. That when they do not have Christ illuminating their path, and they break out of the bondage of the law that some of the religions managed to keep them in. But once they break out of that into a lawless state, they are mad. Mad. Crazy. How was I saying it the other day to Meredith? The more that a government tries to enforce laws that are not true, the more people will just disobey them. The more that that happens, the more the government is officially creating a lawless society by passing laws that can't be kept. The more that that happens, the kids who are not quite wise enough to tell the difference will consider all laws the same. And indeed, a lawless society is what you will have. I pray, I pray it's not as bad as I'm afraid it might be. But what I do know, and I'm never going to forget this Christmas, is that my countrymen are insane if they vote for Biden, if they vote for Trump, if they're not a Christian, they're insane. They think only of themselves and their belly. They only believe that they can live in this life by defeating this life. They're moralists through and through. And you're not. And I'm not. Because we know that death has not been able to contain Jesus. And that changes us. We're not perfectly wise. We still make all kinds of mistakes. But we're not so insane as to think we can escape death. 
like everybody else. Instead, what we do is verse 7 and 8, and this is where I want to go. This is where the happiness is going to pay off, I hope. So it says, go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Let's take the accepting your works part in the middle first. What that is, is just an Old Testament way of saying Jesus is the propitiation of your sins. God's already accepted your works. You have to worry about what you're going to do. If he wants you to live through COVID, you're going to live through COVID. Does that mean you never make any decisions and never think about anything? No, it doesn't mean that. It means you stop fearing. (laughs) You stop thinking that by what you do, you're going to change it. And you walk ahead with what you think is wise, and then you take what comes. And you know, again, that God is with you. He's already accepted you. So if you do die, oh, well, you're with him. And if you don't die, it's more time here with other Christians, which you would then use well to eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, let your garments be white, let your head lack no oil. Let's start with the wine. It's not talking about the Lord's Supper. It's talking about how wine makes glad the heart of man. It's talking about how Solomon says that a king shouldn't drink too much wine because it can distract you. It really can lose your focus. But if the poor man wants to have his pub, well, let him drink his misery away. It's okay. It's from God. That's what he says. Now, I don't want to tell you go drink three to seven on Christmas Eve. That's a bad idea. It's a really bad idea. But if you want to have a glass of wine on your Christmas dinner, that's great. With a merry heart, do it. Spend a little extra. Get a good bottle. That's what he's actually saying. Let your garments be white. Let your head lack no oil. How hard was it to get a white garment in the ancient world? Can you imagine? It's pretty bad now. I mean, I, I wear this. <laughs> my poor wife you know, deals with this, this thing. Um, it's really tough to keep a white garment. Why would you have one? You'd have to spend money cleaning it and time working on it. But it says do it. Why would you spend money on oil to put on your head? Back in the day, this would be the only way you could get clean or smell good is these high-quality oils. You put lotion on your hands, don't you? You take care of yourself. Well, that's what he's saying. He's saying wherever you are, today is what you got. So you might as well take what you got and use it well, not for you, but for us, for you plural around you. So again, as Advent and its judgment, as a year of 2020 rethinking and who knows what and everything continues to want you to think about January to jump ahead to 2021, to think about New Year's and all these post-Christmas returning of presents, all that. Turn it off. Slow down. You got four or five more days of Advent and Christmas in which you are free from the tyranny of sin, death, and the devil, in which no future matters but the time you're going to spend with your family and loved ones today and tomorrow. So go. Go. Enjoy it. Merry Christmas. In the name of Jesus. Come back Thursday night. Amen.